You are listening to Something Rather Than Nothing. Creator and host, Ken Vellante. Editor and producer, Peter Bauer. So everybody, this is something rather than nothing, and uh, have Ellen Adir, who I, I looked it up, Ellen, you are episode 128. Seems like a long time ago, but uh, welcome back on the show. Thank you. It's so nice to be back on the show. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be a repeat offender. Um, you are definitely, uh, since we talked, I mean, one of the things that I noticed um, and just reread about you that I really want to interrogate you on right off the bat, you announce an unhealthy love of baseball. Is such a thing possible? And how is your relationship with baseball unhealthy? It's absolutely possible. And I think it's because people often think about the good side of love when they hear the phrase unhealthy love and they don't think about the bad side of it, which is how sad I am made by baseball regularly, right? And I mean, partly that, partly this is my fault uh, because I, <sighs> I do not post my negative thoughts on social media right? I only post my celebratory ones because I feel like there's enough negativity in the world. So I don't post my negative thoughts about anything. And I do this because then I feel like then I am focusing on my negative thoughts about anything, right? Like if it's about politics, it actually matters. If it's about baseball, it doesn't. But in either case, I'm like, I don't want to focus on these thoughts. I can see them and accept them and then let them go, right? But so then people, I think, look at what they observe my baseball fandom as to be, which is like, hooray, I love baseball. Look at this. Look at that. Yeah, and yeah. there are no videos of me actually crying. About, in pain. In physical, in in physical in, and in, mental in pain. In physical pain about usually the Philadelphia Phillies. Yes. Um, so because I, what I will say is my love of baseball extends to – the sport in general, it extends to many different teams. It extends to many different players. But mostly it's the Philadelphia Phillies who can really hurt me. Uh, it is true that in the postseason, if I've if I if there's another team that I really love that I've I've really put myself behind and then that they do not win and some other team that I hypothetically don't love at all wins, I will also be actually sad. Uh, but it's perhaps a distinction that I have to make, given that I am taken to going and sort of rooting against literally whomever the Yankees are playing, just as the hypothetical example, right? And yeah. I'm sad. I'm sad when the Yankees beat the Angels or the Twins or whatever. But it doesn't it doesn't devastate me in the way that it does when um, one Phillies player is thrown out on the base paths like a nincompoop, which is something that has happened up and down the lineup this year. It, it doesn't make me sad uh, in the same way that it does when a, when a Phillies player muffs a perfectly fieldable ball, which has happened less this year than it has in some years past. Less, nin, um, less nincompoopery uh, early on. More base pass nincompoopery, <laughs> less, less like fielding nincompoopery um, this year for sure. Um, you know, partly that's, that's because of uh, Trey Turner. We've got Trey Turner now. And uh, and he's a defensive upgrade, and also we have Brandon Marsh, you know, the the qualified OPS leader for all of baseball, which is what I totally saw coming, obviously, and I would imagine all of your listeners did as well. Here on uh, April a, April twenty, where were we at? April twenty sixth. Yes, twenty sixth. I looked at my computer to find that out. I wouldn't have known that number organically. You're a stats uh, person, yeah. I mean, I yeah, but like remembering specific numbers, like I know I don't remember exactly what Brandon Marsh's OPS is. It's like eleven seventy three or something. It's ridiculous. Whoa. I don't know if that's the actual number. But it sounds yeah, like a lead leader one. Yeah, sure. It's it's. I mean, you know, uh, uh, I I I'm aware that you're a Red Sox fan, and and I believe that 
Adam Duvall for the time that he spent with the Red Sox, not that he won't come back, has a higher OPS, but it's of, you know, it's a much like two weeks, sample size. <laughs> even like, though it's all, uh, it's all a tiny sample size. I think it might be less than that. It's one of those things where I feel like often early in the baseball season, I feel like it's gone on for a lot longer than it has. Mm-hmm. Even though I'm like, oh, it's a small sample. Always, I'm like, well, we but we've been playing baseball for all of our lives at this point, right? Um, that's always how I feel. And yeah. Like, oh wait, no, it's been like not even a month. Um, yeah. So. Well, you know, there's so much. There's so much to chat about. I wanted to say a couple things. Um, first of all, so the listeners know, uh, yes, Ellen uh, is a, a big time. Uh, Phillies fan, but noticeable lover of baseball as a support, uh, you know, as a sport and overall, and you can get into the stories. I, I share some of that. I'm a big Red Sox fan. I lived in Wisconsin for 12 years and adopted the Milwaukee Brewers as my uh, National League team. And uh, the games I get to go to live out here in Oregon is to go up and see the Mariners. So I kind of try to follow the the Mariners out this way. Um, at this point, the Red Sox are 13 and 13. They just lost against um, uh, Baltimore. I saw that the Phillies are 11 and 13. We're in a similar spot. But before we get to the current state, I wanted to, I wanted to hook in back to where we began about the unhealthy love of baseball. I think there's something absolutely right about what you said. And to connect with that, I will tell you that I believe in my development as a human being, there was a major traumatic event. So Red Sox 86 lands when I'm 14 years old, which I dare say is a transition type of age from one period of life to another. My outlook on life was significantly diminished uh, by the outcome of the 86 World Series. And it, it took me it took me a while to recover. The question is, in your experience and with the Phillies and such, you know, do we ever really, you know, recover when the, the unhealthiness of, you know, at that point, maybe the Red Sox outcome were my life outcome in my limited, you know, head at that moment. And uh, so I really appreciate you identifying that the, uh, the love can be unhealthy and there can be some, some dark spots. I'm a much more happier Red Sox fan after championships and World Series. That period seems long ago. But when I was living in that period of no World Series, it was an ongoing crisis. Yeah. Yeah. Bill Buckner haunted your dreams, you know, like he was everywhere that you looked, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I guess I do believe in the notion of redemption. Um, I, too, I would say that my formative baseball memory and it was it's actually my first real baseball memory okay is uh, is of the 1993 postseason world series and yeah. and like i i remember i know i'd been to baseball games before then and I know that I had attachments to players but the the only the first i mean i was young enough um, that it's like the first actual baseball outcome that I remember is the Joe Carter home run, right? Like yeah. the, the devastation of that. It, everything prior to that was just like, I don't know, like I love these guys because I'm sure they did something at some point. Um, but <laughs> I think it is, it is, and I'm sure at the time, right, had you talked to like tiny child me, I was very young, um, it, it, at the time, I would have been able to tell you more about like, oh, you know, I love Darren Dalton because he did this, right? But like now I don't remember what I do remember. I think what does sear itself into our souls is is the extreme of the emotion, right? So whether that yeah. is the extreme devastation or whether that's like potentially the extreme elation. Um, but I will say, obviously, it was, it was a while for me um, to be... For, for that particular heartbreak to be redeemed in 2008. Um, but, you know, it, it has been. And at least at least that's my experience. And, you know, I lived in Boston, which is why I have a fondness for the Red Sox as well. And uh, I was raised, as I 
lightly alluded to earlier, rooting against whatever team the Yankees are, are playing. I was raised in a fundamentalist hatred of the Yankees. Uh, <laughs> fundamentalist, yeah. Fundamentalist yeah. hatred of the Yankees. And okay. um, it's because my parents are um, pan baseball fans. So I was born in Philadelphia. They were Phillies fans, but they're not, neither of them are from Philadelphia. My dad is from Virginia and my mom is from Oregon. We might've talked about that before. Um, so they, they, that is why the Yankees were the big bad. So people have often asked me like, you're a Phillies fan. Why? And I'm like, I was just the way that I was raised. Right. I was just raised that the Yankees are, are, um, primary, the primary evil baseball opponent. Now, I I have in my own lifetime accrued an antipathy towards uh, the Atlanta organization, but that's all my own. That's not my parents' fault. Anyway, um, I'm trying to remember. Oh, right, right, right. So when I was in Boston, I was immediately like, I can totally get on board with the Red Sox, right? And so I, I will say that I did not, I did not experience the uh, personally experience the disappointment of being a Red Sox fan um, before uh, the, before they started winning a bunch of World Series, which is, of course, what they've done in this century. Um, but I will say I did fully participate in, in their elation and, uh, because I was there at the time. And, you know, I, I, I think that has also imprinted on me. So, like, there is a good side of of a of a of an unhealthy love of baseball. Obviously, I'm not trying to just depict it as, um, you know, as bringing pain and heartbreak. But it's just like, do you really go on the roller coaster, or are you zen about it? Are you like this too will pass? I'm absolutely not like this too will pass. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just I I completely empathetically experience everything um, that the Phillies are going through. However, you know, to that end, I was having this conversation um, with my husband. I was like, it's not affecting me quite as much this year. And I feel like there are are personal reasons for that. But I think it's mostly that a lot of my fandom centers around the fact that the Phillies feel like family to me. They do not feel like a baseball team. I don't remember when I didn't love the Phillies. I have no memory of this time. So the the, the Phillies are uh, that deeply sewn into my heart. And so my experience of fandom is more that I want them to do well because they're my family members. And so I want them to feel good about themselves. I want them to feel like they're good baseball players. It's the main thing that I want, right? So when they do something and I'm like, gosh, I know they're going to be kicking themselves for that. That's when I get really sad, but I'm like sad for them because there certainly are baseball fans who are like angry about I don't know. It's they're not they're not they're not angry with empathy or they're not sad with empathy and I'm not I'm not judging that. I'm just saying that's not what my experience is. And uh and for that reason I know that the Phillies most of them recently had got to feel like they were good baseball players because they at least made it to the World Series and they beat the Astros a couple of times, which was more than anybody else did in the postseason. Sure. And so I'm like, I know that they they have that, right? And so the anxiety that I had at this time last year, when of course the Phillies had the longest playoff drought in the National League, was um, was a lot more intense. Uh, this is not to say that the love is not still unhealthy. It's just that I'm like, they they know that they're good baseball players. They they know they can do this. Uh, at least that's my hope. <laughs> I love your connection uh, to it. Such a, a, a different a different way of of looking at it. Um, hey, uh, listeners, um, chatting with uh, Ellen Adir, who, uh, as I mentioned, has been on uh, episode one twenty eight a little while back. We did the philosophy and art questions. Um, Ellen uh, is an actor, uh, most widely known in The Sinner and Homeland. A podcaster as well uh, with take me into the ball game and um, uh, a baseball a baseball lover um, I saw a recent movie you're in uh, cryptid which really hit my sweet spot of movies um, that I really enjoyed and um, I loved your kick-ass scenes uh, <laughs> in that always nice to see you um, uh, on on the screen but we're um 
we're talking baseball. And one of the things I wanted to, I, I just wanted to tell you just uh, a bit here is that um, I had mentioned uh, to you before I went to the longest baseball game uh, in history in um, Pawtucket, Rhode Island in 1981. And um, when I, my my dad took my brother and I about probably uh, ten maybe nine or ten years old. Uh, Cal Ripken was in that game uh, for Rochester Red Wings. Wade Boggs uh, awesome. for the Red Red Sox at third base. Um, probably Rich Gedman, maybe not somewhere around that time as a catcher for the Red Sox. But this game, a couple pieces connected to it. My dad was getting tired, you know, like he's got his two young kids, you know, all all excited about baseball. Now it's, I don't know, 11, 11 at night. My dad's like, geez, I got to get the bed. You know, we left about the 13th inning and the game went 32 innings that over that day, the uh, night it started, it was a night game and it just kept going. And, you know, when we checked the papers the next day, there was no score. And we're like, why is there no score? It's because the game was still going on. And so two really cool pieces is one, about two in the morning, the owner of the Pawtucket Red Sox, his name was Ben Mondor, well-loved within the community uh, in keeping the Pawtucket Red Sox, a kind of an affordable working class baseball experience. Um, he walked around and gave everybody that was still there season tickets. And it was <laughs> like an April game. So like everybody was still, I don't know how many people were there. I could double check there's a whole book on this 100 200 people they suspended after 32 innings i think because they didn't know what to do and then when the game was resumed the next time rochester was in town uh the Pawtucket red sox won within one inning of that replay and that was the 33rd inning so the famous longest baseball game ever i was there for 12 or 13 of the uh 32 innings that night. Astonishing. I think we actually, and I, I could not, I do not want to swear upon my eternal soul, but I think we talked about that game on one of our uh, podcasts, my podcast. Thank you for my wonderful introduction, by the way. And, uh, <laughs> and also for watching cryptid. Thank you. Um, yep. We uh, talked about it. I believe in the Mr. 3000 episode, potentially, um, about the very longest game ever because I was sort of curious about about games being called at a certain point after they were too long. So, yeah, yeah and you yeah. were there. Sorry that you there. weren't there for long enough to get season tickets. Well, what, one of the funniest things was right after that, after everybody saw what was happening and how long the game was, and that was the longest game everybody was scrapping back to the stadium to look for ticket stubs, having the ticket stub to the longest game. So like, right. My dad was like, Holy, Holy shit. Like, do I still, he had them in his wallet, which he would do. I probably do the same thing, stick them in the wallet and all that. So he had the tickets, but there was a whole bunch of people heading back, you know, like seeing if people threw their tickets out, checking the trash. <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah. Quite the wild yeah. experience. You want that claim of claim to fame. Hey, uh, there's a, I'm sorry. There's a great book on, I think it's called bottom of the 33rd or 32nd, something like that. Dave Barry, the local reporter over there in Rhode Island did it. Sorry to interrupt. Oh no. I think I was just going to say it's particularly intrepid for people to, as a person who has been to April games in Massachusetts, um, if not Pawtucket specifically, like to stick, to stick out there for a while, for April games in Massachusetts is is particularly brave. It's it's different than a July extra inning slugfest. I had a I had a baptism in Milwaukee of the uh, September uh, out at County Stadium, the old County Stadium in Milwaukee, out in the bleachers, and you know the sun dropped and it's Wisconsin and it start getting cold in September. I was like, oh okay. I get it. <laughs> yeah. Just freezing and thinking about April and County Stadium in Milwaukee or May or even June sometimes in Milwaukee. Yeah, the elements, no doubt about it. 
Yeah, I completely believe it. I, I've been to a decent number of baseball games already this year. It seems like we just keep on making plans with friends who are like, oh, let's, let's go to a baseball game on this day. And I'm like, okay. And, uh, I'm so I'm even in New York. I'm so cold that I often don't even really intake the last three innings of the baseball game because I'm just to like tr- like in survival mode. Yeah, <laughs> I guess well, that's another way that it's an unhealthy love of baseball. <laughs> yeah, you stick in there. Well, what about the speaking of baseball uh, length? Um, I want to just uh, you know, there's the pitch clock uh, rules that seem to have been. Uh, implemented smoothly within the rhythm of the game, uh, basically for listeners. Well, let's talk about that. But basically to for listeners, maybe not as familiar, rules change with a, a certain amount of time for the batter to be ready and for the pitch to be delivered, which is new to um, is new to baseball. Um, I on, on baseball, everything baseball, what I I think about baseball a lot, always have since I'm a little kid and I always kind of enjoy when I have like kind of idiosyncratic views of like what's going on. And I found that like when it comes like to the rules of baseball, it's like the only area I tend to be like, like conservative or like really questioning the change. Like I I tend to be kind of traditionalist, at least of the form of the game. And I've had to adapt to the rules and I've adapted quickly and just really kind of think about my reaction to them. Long building, uh, Ellen, pitch clock. What do you think? You're certainly not alone in being a baseball fan who might be liberal in other areas of their life and yet feels very conservative about the rules of baseball. And I do agree with what I see as, and I mean, I'm not the only person. My friend Joe Pasnansky wrote a really wonderful article um, in Esquire before the season. Um, And he and I happened to agree about this. We had talked about it many times before he'd um, written the article. Not that, he, not that I had anything to do with the ideas that are in the article. Um, that that really what MLB is trying to do is get baseball back to the game that it used to be, and that one of the things that the pitch clock is trying to do is get back, get the games back to more or less the length that it used to be. So if you're a nerd like me on baseball Twitter, uh, there are numerous graphs with like the length of game. And you can see that the average length of game now is about the same as the average length of game in like the 1960s. So going back a while, right? But it's, it's not without precedent. And I think even if, you know, I have gone back and watched on YouTube uh, some of the, like the Phillies uh, 1980 World Series, which I was not alive to see. And it is striking how much faster the game moves in general, um, even even in the 1980s. And I think if you look at this particular graph of sort of game time, it's striking even how much it has changed, you know, since 2004, for example, as as a year that means a lot to all Red Sox fans. Yes. And and so a couple of the other changes uh, about limiting the shift and also about larger bases are also about not so much changing baseball as trying to, now that baseball has changed because we have more information about everything, right? And so teams using the analytical information that they have, have then, it has changed the approach of players and it has changed the approach of teams. Now teams feel like, oh, we don't want to, we don't want somebody to steal because the likelihood of them actually stealing the base, especially now that we have replay. And so we might find that like, oh, they're their body like levitated off the bag for one split second and the tag was still on. So they're out. Yeah. All of these kinds of things have disincentivized stolen bases. And so like the, the, the larger stolen bases exist to sort of re-incentivize them. And that's certainly something that we have seen. Um, the number of stolen bases, I was looking at this last week, so I don't have the numbers now, but the number of stolen bases that we have so far this year would put us at 
if we if if the league maintains the same stolen base pace, the most stolen bases in history by really? just like a tiny little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, think yeah. it it's uh I'm trying to remember. I think like uh nineteen eighty nine is the year with the most stolen bases in history. And it could I I think it basically it put it within the error bars or 1987. 1987 was was like the year. you have Vince you have Vince Coleman in the National League with like 110 120 stolen bases. A lot of guys are running. Henderson Ricky Henderson still playing at that time. Totally, yeah, it's yeah. totally those dudes. So I think that it it's not like it would put it to astronomically outpace that. So it could be less, right? But I think it was sort of like within. 15 to 20 stolen bases of that number in 1987. And so, I mean, now I feel like what we're seeing more is like everybody is trying to steal a base and, and certainly like the stolen base success rate is also, I think the highest that it's ever been, not by a lot, but like by a percentage point, something like that. So, um, so these are things that, that MLB has been doing to to try to make the make the game look more like the game that it used to be, which is yeah. I think different than being like we're going to try to change it. I get people who like really really hate the zombie runner on second base, right? Um, in in the extra innings, which would have I don't I don't like that. Season. I've never liked that. I've never liked that at all. That one I don't. I just don't like it. I get it when people don't like it. I find it's actually pretty fun. I wish they would just push it back by a couple of innings. But I, I think it sort of like changes the strategy of the game. I don't know. Like it's I've seen enough games where you actually still go a number of innings, but it's because every team basically just gets the zombie runner home, right? Yeah, yeah. So you're yeah. still tied, but you're tied yeah. one, 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 which is just like more interesting to see than nothing, 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 nothing. I mean, I yeah. Always stay to the end of a baseball game. No, I anyways, like I like think I, I like that I like that way of thinking about it that you presented, you know, that you presented it of how the extra innings can continue. I think the only thing is for me on it is and I do agree, it adds something. I have a lot of thoughts about the pitch clock that I haven't gotten to yet, but yes, feel free. Go oh, we're we're definitely going uh, but but on the on the zombie runner bit, um you know, there's something that I can't get my head up, uh, around that it's not earned in any way. Like that there is something within the game that is disconnected to any hit act or, uh, or rule violation to move a runner along. And so it's implemented right within the, in the rules. And so I think it's not like, you know, I don't ever say it's like inappropriate or what do I have to say about it? But for me, I just have trouble getting around how, the runner appears and I'm still uh, kind of caught up on that, but yeah. Uh, p- pitch, pitch clock stuff, rule changes. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I have quite a crazy idea about, about the, the, the zombie runner um, that I think is I've, I've shared on a number of podcasts that I wish, though I think that this is happening um, with the shift and with, with the limitations on the shift and with the larger bases, which also mean like more likely that you can leg out a single or that you can turn a single into a double. It's just like by marginally making, you know, the space between the bases smaller by having the bases be larger. Like it just, it just gives the batters that little extra boost to. So we, we have been seeing more sort of balls in play, um, Fewer just guys swinging for the fences, um, which is something that like that's an example of something that analytics kind of taught players to go for an uppercut swing and try to loft the ball and try to hit it over the fielders if the fielders are going to be perfectly positioned to the place where I usually hit it. Right. So that's that's an example of like you can't put the the genie of analytics back into the bottle, but how can we change the game a little bit? Anyway, that's an example. So an idea that I've had is that if the game is tied, it's the team that has more runs not scored with a home run that gets the zombie runner. Oh. The other one doesn't get the zombie runner, right? You won't even so want to like build in, 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 yeah, you even want to like, build like in. Like it's sort of light because of course – 
you're just going to play the game, right? And like you want to hit a home run if you want to hit a home run because you're never playing the game to tie in the ninth. You're playing the game to just win it, right? So I don't think it would crazily change things. But yeah, anyway, that's been my my idea. So my thoughts about the pitch clock are manifold. Um, One of them is that the way that pitchers are throwing now is different than they were in the 1960s or the 1980s or the even the early 2000s, right? I saw a 98 um, mile an hour slider that disappeared a few days ago. I I I believe it. Yes. Yes. There's there's so many pitchers throwing um with maximum velocity because that's really what has been incentivized for pitchers. So what's been incentivized for hitters is like, we're going to hit it over the fence. And what's been incentivized for pitchers is like, we just got to throw it at 101, even if we don't always necessarily know where it's going. So because of that, the reason that the pitchers in uh, sort of the past could keep up a more reasonable pace um, I don't know. I don't want to put a value judgment on. Could just keep up a faster pace was because they weren't throwing max effort all of the time. Um, but I am concerned about what this might do for pitcher injuries. We always see a lot of pitcher injuries. We've seen a lot of pitcher injuries so far. I don't know that that's necessarily representative. I think it might be something that we need to look at at the end of the season and sort of be like. Or, you know, maybe we even need a a two or three year sample of like how many pitchers are getting injured in the era of the pitch clock versus how many were getting injured before. Because obviously the young pitchers um, who came up with the pitch clock in the minor leagues, because for people who might not know, they had implemented the the pitch clock in the minors um, for a few years before they finally brought it to the majors. So a lot of the younger pitchers are more used to this pace. But like it's actually the older guys who are perhaps more more likely to 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 injure themselves um, by trying to throw max velocity and not having enough rust time in between their pitches. Um, so I think that's one thing. I don't know that we've necessarily seen that yet. The other thing that that we have seen, and I've seen a number of people and a number of very smart people be like, look at this, the pitch clock is a success. And the thing that they're pointing to is the number of pitch clock violations. So again, for people who don't know, if the batter is not in the box before eight seconds, um, uh, before the at sort of the amount of time that the that the pitcher has to throw the ball, the batter has to be in the box. And if they're not, then they get a strike on them, an automatic strike. And if the pitcher does not deliver the ball by the time that the pitch uh, pitch clock goes down. It's a different number if there are no runners on base or if there are runners on base. Um, then the pitcher gets an automatic ball. So people have looked at the number of of pitch clock violations and been like, oh, it's actually not that bad. People were up in arms about this is what the problem is going to be. But what we actually have seen is incredible volatility for almost all starting pitchers, unless you're Garrett Cole or Luis Castillo. Everybody's up and down. So a lot of individual people who just follow their teams, they're like, wow, like our offense is a lot better than I thought it was going to be, but like our pitching staff can't get it together. And yeah. even like they're pretty good for this start and then they're bad again for this start. Very like, much What so. gives? So, I mean – my my take is right. I mean, it's the it's the not that I want to quote a Yankee, but like the Yogi Bear quote about like pitching is ninety percent mental and the other half is physical, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That, I love I, that. There's so He's many a great philosopher. Yeah, we we can both. This is Yogi Bear, even with the Yankee thing, free quote zone, no doubt. Great. Yogi Bear is fine. I also love Bill Dickey. I don't know. I just love catchers. Anyway, those two yeah, those yeah. two Yankees are fine. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so because it is such a mental game, this is something, you know, I mean, the pitchers obviously that I, that I watch the most closely are the Phillies pitchers. And so I feel like I've seen, um, Aaron Nola and Zach Wheeler, very good pitchers, uh, uh, coming off a lot of innings, right? So that's something that I was kind of like, I feel like people aren't thinking about how many innings Aaron Nola actually threw because, I mean, Zach Wheeler had a few stints on the IL and Aaron Nola really didn't. Um, so nevertheless, like 
that Zach Wheeler, for example, in his last start, absolutely cruising. Like, everything looks so crisp. The slider looks so good. Like, you know, the the fastball is like exactly where he wants it to land. And then he just has one inning where a few guys get on base and like everything falls apart. And I feel like that's because they're they're not able to – I know that when a, any kind of a time restraint is put on me, I feel crazy about it. And I can only imagine maybe some pitchers are adjusting to it very well. You know, maybe it's easier for Bailey Falter, uh, you know, um, a younger pitcher on the Phillies staff who – pitched with the pitch clock in the minor leagues, right? But like Aaron Nolan, Zach Wheeler, they have never done this. And and like even if they can, the fact that there's no release valve for them if they're like, I just need a second, you know, unless JT Realmuto is like, I'm going to go use one of our, um, you know, confabs on the mound in order to just calm this pitcher down. So I don't know. I like it's it's impossible to to necessarily like correlation does not equal causation but when you when you look across all of baseball and you see that happening to almost every pitcher that it's almost like you can't predict what's going to happen right this is often how it feels and and so I I just I have to feel like the the pitch clock that they're that they're mentally struggling even if it doesn't look like they're physically struggling even if there's not a lot of pitch clock violations I think it's really hard for them doesn't mean that they won't get used to it my my advocacy would be that we just add five seconds onto the pitch clock so that we avoid Pedro Baez type situations but still they just now that they have a little bit more practice with this, like that extra five seconds will just feel like a beautiful reprieve. Um, Not that I'm saying anybody will do what I think they ought to do, but that's what I think they ought to do because because I feel also like having gone to a couple of two-hour games and I'm like, wait, what? The game's over already? Um, I wouldn't mind if the games breathed just a little bit more. Like, so that's, that's, that's my take on the pitch clock. Yeah. Thanks, Ellen. Um, yeah, a lot of things to think about. And I think the point that you were making, a couple of things I took from what you were saying is, um, uh, thinking about the pitchers and thinking about the workers, you know, I'm a union guy. That's what I do for my, my day job. So like, yeah, thinking about those arms, right. And you have to adjust to the rules cause they're the rules, but who's pays the price. And I think we have to look at like you said, take a look at that. And um, the variability of performances and which is you and I know that's part of baseball being like, holy shit, this guy last time was out there, but I'm noticing with the socks, it just kind of the strange study of Chris sale who's coming back from significant injuries and seeing the Chris sale was the Chris sale like last star. And then this one, and it's just so, uh, unpredictable. Another piece too on the pitch clock that is a story that was built up in the Boston press was around Kenley Jansen. So it was thought around the league that the, the, the pitcher least able to adjust to the pace, particularly a pitcher who's pitched for a while. It was Kenley Jansen. So there's this big question as you sign him and coming over to Boston, big market while well, he's been lights out. So there's the the unpredictability because I think anybody who explained to me Jansen's pitch patterns and how he had done things, I'd be like, that's a hell of adjustment in at this point in your career. And he's knocking it out. So it's tough. I think part of it is the data, like anything in baseball, of 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 seeing what actually what actually is the case with this. And it's even though it feels like the season's been going on, we're just a few weeks in, like we were talking about earlier, right? So yeah, it was actually, you know, it's interesting. They had on um, Baseball Savant, which is a site for nerds like me, for people who don't know, with a, with a lot of sort of like the the um, the the batted ball metrics, like the, you know the pitch spin rates and velocity, and and you know how the pitches are performing and stuff like that. That, and they had a kind of a leaderboard of how pitchers average pace. 
um, this past offseason that was really interesting to look at. And it, it wasn't just Kenley Jansen. It's a lot of relievers because relievers tend to be max effort type of guys, right? Because they're only throwing for an inning. But that means they really need more time in between the pitches to recuperate. Um, but uh, I mean, I'm delighted to see that Jansen's doing okay. And I think it it could it could be because their mental game as a relief pitcher hasn't changed as much as I think it has for for a starting pitcher. Because um, oh, you really yeah. do just need to be like, I've just got to go out there. I've just got to get got an inning. three guys, yeah. ideally, no. right? I'm not even going to let anybody get on base. Whereas yep. like... You can you can do that even for like four beautiful innings if you're Aaron Nola or Zach Wheeler and then just kind of kind of collapse, and and the uh, the the Chris Sale thing is just so so baffling. I think he's a great sort of case study for this, right? And obviously yeah. there are um, there are other factors, and that he sure. is coming back from all of those freak injuries that he had last year and everything like that. But you know what was interesting in some of his earlier starts. Um, before the start against Minnesota, where he got those eleven strikeouts, he he a lot of his stuff was still there, right? So the results weren't great, but you were you were kind of like, oh, but things are are you know doing pretty well, uh, it, just in terms of like the way that the the shape of the pitches, and he was still getting swinging strikes and stuff like that. And that last start against the Orioles, he got two swinging strikes i was i was baffled like you were always a very small number for people who don't know to to, like all of the pitches that he threw only twice Twice. did he get not that's not a strikeout he got zero strikeouts chris dale got zero strikeouts it was bananas right because in some ways i sort of felt like i at least could tell myself a story from the previous starts leading up to the minnesota start that like i was like oh like I I get where he's going. He's coming back from injury. He's going to be okay. And then all of a sudden, just like complete chaos. Like, I mean, the only story that I can really tell myself that makes any sense about that is is the fact that I know that he's faced the Orioles a number of times this year, including in, in spring training starts. And like, it could be that the Orioles just kind of have his number. Seen him a few I don't times know. for this point right? in the season. Yeah. But like, yeah, it's just one of those things where you're you're trying to if you're if you're a baseball fan or you know an analyst as I as I am, uh, like trying to make sense of things and and you can't really right. So I do I'm aware that that the sort of the pitch clock is getting to guys is the narrative that I'm telling to try to explain the chaos that we're seeing right. Um, you know. Somehow Luis Castillo and Garrett Cole are fine, but like everybody else, it's just chaos. Well, there is a dominant, there is a dominant narrative that I think anybody listening to the game. And Shohei Otani. Oh my God. How could I forget? Like Shohei Otani looks like the best. I mean, he is the most astonishing human being to ever live, but yeah. I'm going to go. No, let's jump over there because I need a segue over. So I had Shohei Otani as a pitcher on my fantasy team and as a tribute to you in a risk of, um, I thought it was a lazy waiver move for me, but I, I said, I got to go with the Phillies. I picked up Craig Kimbrell for my fantasy team because is he getting locked in or is, did I just make a really poor move? I mean, I uh, I trust Craig Kimbrell about as far as I can throw him at this particular point in his me career. Me too, kind of. But also it's a situation where it looks like Jose Alvarado's getting most of the save chances. I know that Craig Kimbrell got a save chance last Saturday, I think, but I think Alvarado yeah. was not available at that point. So yeah. I mean I'm uh, desperate. I I'm desperate. I should have told you the caveat was like I'm desperate too. So it looks like it it does look well, like a well, desperate sure. move. Well, sure. Look, look, I mean, here's the thing, here's the thing that every Phillies fan is telling themselves. Now, I was freaking furious about the Gregory Soto trade where where the Phillies traded away Nick Maton and Matt Veerling um, for Gregory Soto, mostly because I just did not believe in the value of the target, right? Like I was just like, I don't I don't want Gregory Soto on this team. Um, but the thing that everybody's pointing out is like, look what Caleb Cotham was able to do with Jose Alvarado 
He looks mm-hmm. like one of the best relievers in baseball right now. Yeah. And yep. that he is v- very much a like, you know, throw it at 101 but doesn't know where it's going kind of a guy and and had had a had a great problem with control. Well, well Kimbrel obviously um different because he's at a completely different point in his career, but also like control is a real issue. Too many walks is an issue for Kimbrel, is an issue for uh, Gregory Soto. So I think there's a little bit, there's a lot of hope in the Philadelphia fan community that somehow Caleb Cotham can work the magic that he did on Jose Alvarado on these other two dudes. I don't know that it necessarily works that way, but if you're looking for an optimistic viewpoint, you know what? Like Caleb Cotham has really improved a lot of people's cutters and, and curveballs and like vastly improved. It's not, it's not just Alvarado. It was mostly, um, changes to Bailey Falter, uh, changes to, uh, Ranger Suarez, um, were, were some of the, the kind of prime beneficiaries of that. So like, yeah, I mean, Craig Kimbrell has been pitching for a a million years at this point. Uh, it feels like anyway, Um, it's still, yeah. It's, it, I He's mean, not as much well, of a work in progress as Soto is, but it could happen. Well, so on the reliever situation, my fantasy team's the Pawtucket Red Sox, and I understand now there's a team called the Wista Red Sox. That's another story, but I, I, my fantasy t- team's Woo still Sox. Pawtucket Reds, uh, the Woos Sox, I, I reckon. And um, so... Uh, so I picked up Kimbrel, but my thing is I got Jansen, but I need another two or three guys. And I have a, a dude for San Francisco. I think he's a lefty Chafin, C-H-A-F-F-I-N. Um, he's kind of in and out for, for closing. So I got to tell you one strange thing, just as the point about stolen bases on my fantasy team, I was going head to head with sure. another team. I can't have any, I don't have anybody that will run. So I haven't set up my team to win stolen base category so last week i had one stolen base the fantasy team i went up against had 18 like i was like how like and i'm thinking of like last year and the year before i think i used to win this category squeak out with free stolen bases at like 18 i'm not even gonna compete if a team's pulling together 18 stolen bases in a week. Yeah. So lots of, lots of SBs, lots of SBs. For sure. I think, are you talking about Andrew Chafin, which is only one F and he's on the Diamondbacks. He's not on the Giants, but I think he has been closing for them. It's, it's, I mean, the Diamondbacks obviously like look like a really good team right now. I love the Diamondbacks. Um, but uh, yeah, it's sort of un- has been a slightly unsettled uh, closer situation for them. But I think it's been mostly Chafin recently. But anyway, yeah, we'll thank you. I I did I did double check that and uh, absolutely right with Arizona. Thanks for the correction. Um, well, anyways, hopefully that works out for me. But that's my fantasy team. That's very particular. We're talking baseball. One of the things that I always thought about the whole pace of the game type of thing, and I'll never get rid of this just to have the conversation is. Um, I'll make the aggressive theory around baseball that it ain't the game's fault. It ain't the game's fault at all. Whatever the hell's happening on the field. All right. Follow me. The game is not about something. It's about nothing. It's about things not occurring most of the time. Things will occur within baseball. There will be events. There will be home runs. There'll be a 101 mile an hour swing and miss. These are action events. But the composite of the thing itself is American human beings looking for something all the time when there's space and there's nothing a lot of the time. And I think there's a relationship between the game and the game's always trying to adjust because the game has to be basketball. It also has to be football. It also has to be this and that. And it's still baseball and I know it can change but there's an attitude type of thing where when I go to a game outside of it being cold I'm really to chill I'm ready to chill the fuck out for the most part and I and try to take a different view of the whole thing uh nowadays I wasn't always like that so for me there's a lot of nothing in the game and people are looking for some things that aren't there is my theory what say you Ellen I I agree conceptually with what you're saying. 
that obviously baseball is a more leisurely sport and, you know, um, when, when people object to the pitch clock on the notion that, that like baseball is supposed to be the only sport without a clock on it, a baseball game can still be any amount of time, right? Um, so I don't, I don't quite have that same purist attitude. On the other hand, what I like about baseball is that it is also reflective, right? That it is, there's something about watching a baseball game where there is an, enough space between um, large events that if you want to just be in a sort of a meditative spot, space, especially if you're at the ball game and you're outside with the sun yeah. and the grass, yeah. Yeah. You, can, you can be engaged in what's going on and also sort of meditative. It's certainly a thing that I like about it. On the other hand, I would disagree that it is nothing um, because I think there is actually always something going on. And I feel like that's almost a sort of a physics question, right? Yeah, so yeah. it's like you could say this glass <laughs> is empty or you could be like, no, there's air in that glass, right? It's not actually empty. There's a lot of little molecules. If you could get down there, you know, if you could get to the particle physics level, you'd see that there's lots of stuff yeah. in the glass. And, you know, who knows? Like, are there strings from other multiverses moving through that glass, right? I mean, that's on, I love that stuff, but that's another level. So I also appreciate that level of baseball, right? That, like, if what I want to engage in is what kind of pitch is the pitcher going to throw now, right? Okay, yeah, yeah, so like, yeah. you know, he he threw him a fastball and he didn't swing at it. So like he's hunting something else right now, right? So yeah, does I'm with that, that mean that you yeah. then decide to go for another fastball somewhere else in the zone or in the, you know, in the same place? Are you going to try to get a called strike? Are you going to go for a swing? But like, then is he going to hit, right? Like I love yeah. that level of the game and I love being able to watch and be like, oh my God, he threw like that entire at that was five straight curveballs and that's crazy. Like yeah. I, I love that stuff. So I do too. For yeah. me, nothing everything like stuff is always happening. The sort of the the chess game of the of the pitcher and the batter is always yeah. happening. And um so I don't think there's ever really nothing. But I think like there's this space for if you're like I don't want to engage in that chess game right now. I actually just kind of want to like sit back and enjoy being in my body and like with my friends and what it is to be alive and, you know, to watch people who are very skilled at something, right? You can do that too. I like that it, that, that I feel like baseball in that way enables any number of ways of engagement with it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I, I think you're right. I think, um, I think just the fan experience, I mean, looking at seeing, you know, there's enough time and maybe if you're in the sun for long enough and you check the bullpen and you see some sort of interaction between players that have been built up, you know, during the game, maybe on the field, the positioning and all those type of things. So, yeah, I think I think that's it. I think the main the it's a good discussion. I think the main thing that it seems to me has to do with in conceptually where we do agree is that the some things in our, um, in our, our highlight, uh, our money driven, you know, the capitalist like American system is, you know, the home runs and the strikeouts, right? So there's, there's so much attention to what is the product we're trying to pull together in this amount of time. And I think there's a tension with how fans approach approach the game and how they want to spend the time there when you listen to games right now i feel like there's such a heavy pr thing that's also going on that you hear on every single game through the announcers through the teams like i heard an announcement was this has been tested and vetted in the minor leagues it's best for the game and your game is quicker we listen to you fans this is what you told us and it's there's like a whole big pr around everything that's going on right now uh so I found it very noticeable, and uh, I'd imagine it's very influential around some of the opinions people have about the pace and 
what's going on. But your point about injury and like needing to see what's going to go on amongst other factors is the story's not settled as far as, you know, what it means and for, for safety or enjoyment or whatever way we view it. Yeah. In my, in my opinion, it's, it's not, it's not settled. I think people, people are, are looking at too small of a, of a picture of what it's doing. Um, and I feel like even if at the end of the year, they're like, oh, not more pitcher injuries. I still feel like that's not necessarily the whole story. And I mean, for me, I'm, I'm, a baseball lifer. I'm going to enjoy baseball almost no matter what form it gets. And so yeah, yeah. I certainly don't mean to uh, espouse the propaganda, but I also feel a little bit like, look, I know that 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 MLB did a lot of surveys, asked a lot of fans. I know I filled some of them out because I personally, the things that I love the most, right? And I mean, this is also something that I was thinking about. Somebody could be like, oh, what happened in that inning? Oh, nothing happened. But another person could be like, there were two amazing defensive plays, right? But from somebody else's perspective, they would be like, nobody got on base, nothing happened, right? But for me, like the defense is one of my favorite things to see. And that was one of the things that like, I think that that MLB heard in a lot of surveys um, is that that's something that people really enjoy. So by limiting, by putting limitations on the shifts, you're going to get more um, sort of exciting defensive plays rather than just like, oh yeah, that outfielder knew exactly where to stand and he was standing there and he caught the ball. Um, so I don't, I don't disagree with that. And then in terms of like pace of play never bothered me. Right. But that's because I'm in it. I'm a baseball lifer. I'm going to watch no matter what. Yeah. I was the same way. The pace never bugged me. Yeah. If I hear that it matters to other people then I'm just like, okay, well then it matters to them. Right. And so I'm not then here to be like, but my experience is the most important of the experiences. Yeah. I've just never felt that way about it. So, um, so yes, I don't mean to, uh, to just sort of, again, like repeat the baseball propaganda that like this is what it is to get it back to. But I yeah. actually think that's I do think that is what it is. It like could I'm not, be. That's, it could correspond it, with what's going on. I mean, it's it is it, just. You know, it it could be with what's going on or what seems to be going on um, thus far. I mean, football uh, has done the same thing in terms of making rule changes in order to preserve the way that the game is experienced almost, right? So it's like the literal rules don't necessarily stay the same, but like the overall experience of how the game is played. Um, So in that regard, I'm, I'm, I'm not against it, but... I, you know, I don't know. Yeah. It, yeah. It's sort of interesting to me, right? Like I came into this season being like, what's going to happen? Like not just what's going to happen baseball wise, you know, like who's going to end up being the best team, but there's just a lot more um, suspense about yeah. how all of these different things are going to affect the game. And what's so interesting is that a lot of people, a lot of baseball analysts were kind of like, ooh, I think this is going to be really big, big old bases, eh, whatever. And my dad was like, I like all the rule changes except for the bigger bases. I hate those. Interesting. And I actually feel like the bigger bases have been a lot more impactful than I think a lot of people thought they were going to be. So to me, that's interesting, right? Yeah. It's just, it's, it's, it's almost like I'm such a baseball fan that I don't mind having a little bit of a scientific view of like, okay, well, if like we do this thing in this environment, how's the environment going to change? Yeah. I love it. Um, we're talking baseball, heck the philosophy of baseball with Ellen Adir. Uh, Ellen, uh, can you, what, what else do you do? I mean, you, I know you write and you do the podcast and you go to the baseball games and you're an actor. What's uh, what's going on like this spring into the summer? What what what's, what do things look like for you? Um, well, uh, thank you for mentioning that I do have a movie cryptid that is out uh, on you know a variety of platforms where you can purchase it to view it in your own home. Um, I do have another couple of movies that are going to be coming out this year. I don't know exactly when. Um, One of them I still can't share the name of. They're just being protective of the name because it is, um, it's sort of 
really lets you know what the concept is and they're being protective of the concept. And the other one is called Herd, H-E-R-D. So uh, I think that's going to be a really special film and I would love it for people to look out for that. And uh, other than that, yes, I am writing a lot and I am uh, doing my podcast, which is called Take Me Into the Ball Game. And I have another podcast called Love Takes Action. I am the host of that podcast. Um, I am not also the producer of that podcast in the way that I am with Take Me Into the Ball Game. Um, and uh, that we're going to be getting started on our second season of that pretty soon. And it's a really special podcast talking to people about uh, the ways in which um, choices in their life have led them towards or the passion that they have has led them towards helping other people um, making a change in their community or the ways that other people have helped them and it has made a change in their lives. And uh, so I've got that going on. And I am sometimes on MLB Network as well. So folks can follow me on uh, the terrible Twitter place uh, at Ellen underscore Adair for uh, a lot of my doings in that regard. Um, all social media is terrible, but it's, it's the, the, the general format of Twitter is still my favorite. I'm the on Twitter. At, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Ellen Adair G and I'm on post just at Ellen Adair. The only one that I was able to just get my normal name. <laughs> there you go. I was, I was going to say, um, and on something about certain formats, maybe it is Twitter about numbers and sharing charts and quick hashtags that seem, at least in my head, to fit baseball and being able to converse about it quickly with numbers and, and, and ideas. So, um, yeah, it's and, and thanks for letting us know. And uh, I just wanted to ask you about um, just uh, just your general thoughts about podcasting right now because um, – there's a, there's a, there's a lot of attention to podcasts and the listener listening habits of those who are 30 years and younger. They're shown massive statistical pieces of the amount of time that people listen to podcasts for news and information. It's an industry that just really supposed to rapidly expand in, in, in content and advertising over the next few years. So if you've been, you have any thoughts about, you know, you've, you've done some, uh, great work. Uh, does, does it feel different now how people talk about podcasting than when you began? I mean, I didn't ever start podcasting until, uh, the year 2020 when I think many people also started podcasting. So I don't, I can't say that as a podcaster, I have felt that sea change, um, myself in that amount of time. I certainly feel like in my lifetime, I know the, the difference, you know, I, I remember when there were fewer podcasts, so it sort of felt like old timey television shows, you know, like everybody watched the Ed Sullivan show and everybody listened to like that season of serial. Right. And now it's not like we don't, we don't have that same, like, Oh yeah, everybody is listening to this thing because there's just so many. It's highly, highly fragmented for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Highly fragmented. I have so many different podcasts that I, that I listen to that it used to be that there were some podcasts that I listened to every, every single episode, even if they were like a daily baseball podcast. And now yeah. there's like, I'll even be like, I listen to 80%, but because I'm listening to so many different ones, then yeah, yeah. like I, I think my, my overall podcast listenership has definitely gone up. Um, I would say in the last yeah. few years. I love the work that you do. And it's also great to see on MLB uh, network. I could see you running one heck of a show over that way with uh, everything or with everything you can bring in. So um, always, always really great to talk to you. And I got to tell you, Ellen, uh, you know, just personally um, uh, being able to dig in on the podcast or be able to do a talk in baseball episode um, with you, it really means a lot to me. It's, it's, it's fun to go deep in and to dig in. And, you know, listeners, if you're all not into baseball, uh, you, you know, we're, we're, we're digging in on some of this stuff and, and talking. And I don't always get this opportunity. And I have always been a baseball obsessive with statistics and stories and, um, I just want to tell you, it's a real treat, not only to have 
you on the show, but to have this type of conversation. And I just wanted to let you know that. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I always love talking about baseball. And also, you know, philosophy. And philosophy and to be alive. something right? and the so. nothing and the uh, uh, – but I do um, – everybody check out uh, all of Ellen's uh, creativity and uh, her uh, uh, conspicuous comments around baseball, which I just love, uh, just kind of thinking about the game. And um, have a great time uh, at the stadium uh for when for when you go i'll be going to my i haven't been to a game this year i'll be going to seattle game uh up north um uh before i leave oh it's and it's a wonderful field but i gotta tell you one cool little baseball trip what i'm gonna, gonna try to duplicate so went out camping over in the gorge on the washington state side of the gorge over in uh oregon Stayed over there next to um, a native uh, petroglyph uh, area where you can camp. There is a fantastic museum that's on the gorge called the Mary Hill. There is uh, a, right next to that, there is a replica of Stonehenge. Did all that, drove up towards Snoqualmie Falls, visited Twin Peaks, as we know it fictitiously on the screen, and then got there for game time. Uh, with the Seattle versus Boston in the beautiful air. And I'm going to try to duplicate that trip very soon. Amazing. Ah, oh, yeah. That sounds like the best trip. A little bit of everything. A <laughs> little bit of everything. So um, thanks again, Ellen. Um, hope to chat with you soon and enjoy your baseball games. Thanks. You too. Thanks so much for having me on. This is Something Rather Than Nothing, 